Today's podcast is sponsored by Fire Facilities Incorporated, expert engineers, designers, and manufacturers of steel training towers, burn rooms, and mobile units that are all made in the USA. Welcome to the shitty internet and three-point firefighter show. This week's guest is Mark Alone. <laughs> you know Mark from the last time he was on here. I consider Mark a good friend. Now, Mark is a career captain of West Columbia, South Carolina Fire Department, and he's a volunteer firefighter with Hepzibah, Georgia Fire Department. Did I say it right? He did. Nice. So, bro- Brother Mark has been in for about 19 years in the fire service. He uh, was in the Air Force. He is a national speaker. He talks a lot about culture, leadership, and professional development. He has a degree from EKU, uh, Fire Protection Administration, a bachelor's. There you go, brother. And you also have a master's from Waldorf. And you probably know Mark from his excellent blog, The Fire Inside. Brother Mark alone, welcome back for the third time, actually. It's like version 2.0.1, right? (laughs) Yes. So Mark was on last week, but uh, the internet shit all over us. So when I went to edit the video, it looked at the end of editing the video is like a Max Headroom special. It was terrible. It was really bad. (laughs) And my buddy said, you know what? Let's just do this shit again. So thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Appreciate you coming back again and again. Absolutely, man. Happy to be here. These are always fun. So what's going on with you lately, brother? Uh, I think the same as everybody else, trying to deal with the crazy ways of the world, trying to stay motivated, uh, going to work, spending some time uh, with the family. Summer vacation just ended for us here for the kids. So mine actually went back to school this week, which is really early for a lot of places. Um, So uh, try to do a little more work-life balance uh, over the summer. Try to be home a little more with the kids. Kind of dial back the blogging just a touch, but I think it's actually helped uh, make more substance to what's written and kind of weeded out some of the. You could tell I just wrote, you know, what I wrote to write it to get something up today. Uh, but yeah, other than that, just trying to to find the groove, uh, the ups and downs of life, uh, the ups and downs of work, different partners. Uh, we went to 4896 at work, which is absolutely freaking amazing, if I do say so myself. One of the, the better oh, schedules I've ever worked. I've always wanted to work that schedule, man. So how was it adapting to that 4896? Yeah, so it's weird. I don't know if I've really adapted to it yet because we're we're technically still in our trial, which is six months. I think it ends sometime at the end of uh, the month. Uh, and hopefully it'll stay that way. But uh, you it doesn't really seem like you're at work for two days, honestly. And, you know, we're, we're decently busy. Uh, some, some shifts we don't run as much as others, but we've run as much as uh, I think 40 calls between the two units in, in a 48 hour shift, which is, you know, it's fairly sporty. I know it's not as busy as a, as a Stockton or somewhere like that, but it's enough to, to test it. And for the most part, you don't really feel like you're there for two days. It feels like one big shift uh, where you really notice it is when you're off, uh, your your home and <laughs> about the third day you start looking around like you feel like you should be somewhere and on day four you're just all messed up because you've, you've done all these things <laughs> the family's seen you and you feel like you're on vacation and 
do I go back to work today? No, no, no. That's tomorrow. So I would say the only downside is when you pick up uh, overtime or you do trades or mandatories, 72 is, is a long shift. And, uh, but the, the flip side of that though, is that you still get three days before you come back where if you were on 24, 48 and you worked a 48, you only had that one day, which isn't much of a reset at all. So it might as well be a 72 and no break anyway, but so, yeah, we've been enjoying life with that. I, I think it's a good schedule. I don't really know if it's for everybody with their, their call volume and their size and stuff, but I know for us uh, it's so far so good from what I can tell and what I hear. So I'm hoping it's, it stays that way for a little bit because I know my family absolutely loves it. They, they love that you're gone that long or they love that you're home that much? <laughs> yeah, I, ironically, I know you'll, you'll find this hard to believe. They love that I'm home that much, but they say it doesn't feel like you're gone as much, even though you're you're gone for a larger chunk of time because you're home so many days in a row. It, it doesn't feel, I guess, as absent as, as the other schedules. So, um, but yeah, now, have you all, it, since you're doing it six have you since you you're doing it for six months? Have you thought out like the all the holidays coming up? Yes, yeah, so I know they, sometimes the, that can be a problem when you first implement it. Yeah, the the guys for us that's kind of spearheaded it did a very good job of forecasting out things that would be asked. And I don't know what it is for some reason. Every time you want to change the schedule, Christmas comes up, and everybody loses their mind about Christmas. And I get it; like Christmas is my favorite holiday, but I kind of knew getting in the fire service, I would probably miss a few. And so with the 4896 schedule, there's certain years. I, I, I want to say it's every it's like every three or four years you end up working a Christmas and a Christmas Eve together. And so it's, well, are you going to split it up then? Or are you, and it's like, no, we're just going to work it. So we haven't actually got to it yet, but we we know when it falls that way, when one shift is going to get in. You know, it's just like anything else. If you got people with young kids, you, you take care of them. We do some shift trades, whether it's a whole shift, partial shift, whatever. Or you right. you kind of say, hey, I joined the fire service and I'm going to suck it up and I'll have four days before Christmas Eve to celebrate and four days after Christmas to celebrate. So nice. Is it does it change your the way your holiday or your not your holidays, your PTO works? Do you do you find that you're going to get a couple extra days each year or is it just going to be a wash basically? My understanding is it's a wash because the, the hours and the paper don't change because all you're basically doing is bookending your 24 hour shifts together. You're not really working. You're not changing the hours. So the rate, the pay rates didn't change. Mm -hmm. uh, the time off didn't change. Uh, the only thing I think for us is looking at, you know, how long are you going to keep somebody there on a mandatory? Are you, how long are you going to allow people to work at once? And then. I know for us, we kind of treat it like two separate 24 hour shifts still. So if you call out sick for day one, but you feel okay for day two, you can come back. And if you want to take one part of your shift off instead of both, you can do that or, or trade one day. You don't have to do 48 hours. You do 24 in a shot. So, um, I, I like I said, I, I think it's pretty good. I, I know it doesn't really solve the, the hours work problem and the sleep deprivation problem, but in my experience, which is all I can speak to is that I feel like with more time to recharge when you do get, you know, beat up pretty bad for a couple of days, you've got enough time to recover when you're off. And I, I feel more rested now than I did on the 2448. Do you do try to do everything the first day you're there and then have a nice, easy second day? Or do you just split it up no matter what? Um, for us on a shift, we've, we kind of let all the, the company officers decide how they were going to run things. So the department, doesn't really have a set rule on how you handle that. But 
obviously uh, we have day personnel. So the, the front of the house still has to get, you know, cleaned. You can't have things sloppy. The bathroom's got to clean. None of that has really changed for us. Uh, we do try to do a little more training, I think, on the first day, if we can help it, depending on call volume, because sometimes if you, you had that rough first day, it's nice to just kind of hang out on the second day. But for most of us, we've we've kind of found out that it's actually better to be busy on a 48 so it doesn't lag as much. So we just kind of treat it like 224s. And if you're, like I said, if you're tired, we might take it a little easier, but we still get up at normal time in the morning. We, we all made the agreement if we were really tired that we would wait till after lunch to try to go take a nap. Because most of the guys anyway, if you get have a rough night, they're up anyway. They're, you're not going to fall asleep at seven in the morning. You're, right. you're kind of amped. So, uh, but yeah, so not... For us, it's been kind of business as normal. Um, and if there is a, a little lull, it's in that second day. But you're also only at the fire station half, you know, half the, the sets that you were, you know, five, five days, you know, five times going there. So you can't really neglect stuff because you get behind. So all the, the extra, the, the pre-plans, the hydrants, the training, if you, you say, oh, we're going to do it on the first day, not the second, you're only getting half as many days a month to do it. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, we'll sway the conversation over to culture. Um, I like to talk to you about culture. Uh, yeah, it's like that shit right here um, because you're you're just a big advocate for a good fire development co- department culture. What made you look at culture in the fire service and say, you know what? I need to read about this. I need to write about this. I need to go out and tell people about this. Uh, yeah. So I got into culture, I think, uh probably at a young age, I, I was a first generation firefighter. So obviously everything was kind of foreign to me. And like most people that get into the business, you just kind of assume things are the way they are for a reason. Uh, but as my career went on, uh, I did a lot of reading. I was a big buff, you know, watching YouTube videos, reading magazines, getting on the internet, reading about, you know, bigger jobs than mine. And I just saw there was a lot of stuff out there. And as I was introduced to training, on the the national kind of front to these regional conferences, national conferences, and started having a lot of more communication with people on other jobs, you kind of see that there's common denominators with, you know, a high functioning crew that's wanting to be there, wanting to do things. And then, you know, obviously the people that are unhappy and stagnant. And while they are common, what I've kind of found is it's a big chemistry problem, really. And you can take you know, three squared away people that hate each other and they won't perform well. And you could take three people that get along really well, but maybe aren't as high speed at the job and they'll probably have better outcomes. And that's kind of what I dove into is how do you, how do you quantify that in the fire service? Cause everybody wants that recipe. Everybody wants, you know, how do we build morale? How do we make people want to work here? How do we keep people here? And, and sadly, every time I get asked, well, I don't know if, if I had the answer, I'd be rich. I'd, I'd bottle it and I'd sell it, you know, Mark's culture <laughs> serum. Uh, but it's just not that easy sometimes. And it's a lot of give and take and it's a lot of compromise. And I think for us in the fire service right now, we're, we're really starting to struggle with the fact that the rest of society has crept in our doors and we've fought it for so long. And now we're we're having all these same problems that the, the people in the IT world are having, the people in healthcare are having, the people that sell things, the people in, in food, you know, it's just hard to find people that want to work. And if they want to work, that are actually willing to to put in the sweat to be good at what they do. And, and if you could get that, that's a bonus. Uh, but my, my quest is, is just really simple. It's, it's I love the fire service. I've always loved it. And I just try to expose that in other people. It, it comes off wrong sometimes where I think people, 
well, you're shoving it down our throat. You know, you want everybody to be like, no, it's not it. I just want to kind of share what makes me passionate about the fire service. And, and maybe if somebody can take a small part of that and then share something with me that, that makes them, you know, ate up or makes them want to come back shift after shift, you know, I can digest that, maybe improve myself. And I've just, I've seen it both ways. I've seen people that could really care less and how it negatively affect, affects what they do. And then I've seen how when people share that common denominator of really putting the fire service first, just how good the outcomes could be. So, uh, you know, maybe it's futile some days. I, I don't know, but I kind of take the approach that if, if I can make one person's career better or they can make my career better, it's, that's a victory because we're, we're not going to, we're not going to solve it for a million firefighters, but we could solve it for one or one or two, then the fire service is better for it. Absolutely. Um, I'm very fortunate to go around and see different fire departments and see different cultures. Um, and one of my favorite cultures, and I actually thought about if I could get a phone signal where I was at for this, I would have called you. I was in Callowit, Canada, and it's up near the Arctic Circle. And this chief was one of the best chiefs I've ever met. Uh, he, when we first met him, all he did was talk about his people. And he's like, my people, this, they do this and they're great and blah, blah, blah. At no time did he say me. He never said I made these people or I make them train. He All he did was brag on his people. And so we were there for four or five days and that's all he did. Super nice guy. Um, we've become friends since then because he, he just blew me away and his people loved him. So like on breaks and stuff, when I'm walking down there, I talk, oh yeah, Steve's great. Chief McGee is great. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, he starts every day going down with his people and drinking coffee with them and not to talk fire department stuff, but just to see how they're doing. And I was like, oh, dude, this is such a great culture, man. I, I really I should have called you. But again, there's no phone service up there. Um, and then I traveled to other departments with horrible chiefs that only care about themselves. They only promote or, or help uh, their best friends or their uh, uh relatives or whatever it is, right? They don't care about the membership. Uh, and then I've been to others that are in between. Um, but to me, I always wonder why. Why is, let's take a bad culture right now. Why is it that a department would have such a bad culture? What cause, like, I believe, was it Sean Duffy that said the culture is your personality of your department? What, yeah. what gives a department a bad personality? Yeah. And, and it's funny because it doesn't look the same everywhere, right? That That's the irony of, of the cultural equation. And, and I don't think we understand culture sometimes and what it means, right? It, it's supposed to be, if you if you define it and, and we forget with words sometimes how important it is to actually know what they mean when we throw them around left and right. But, you know, culture is just a bunch of people that are like-minded and have a common goal in mind coming together, right? It's how civilization started. It's how society started. And I think we've you know, not to throw out the, the, the evil diversity word that gets people so spun up, you know, but we, we just are so diverse now. We we have, it's not like the old days where it was, you know, the roster was just a, a family tree, you know, and nepotism was the promotional policy. And you, you had people, they all had a common background. They built houses, they were electricians, they were plumbers, they were tradesmen. And as that's gone away for us, I don't know that the job has really adjusted to it, but we still, we have so many generations in the fire service. I think right now in some places you're looking at four or five, even different generations that could be riding the truck together, especially in a volunteer organization. So if you think back to how your parents were like, your generation's going to be the 
death of the world, right? The world's going to burn because your generation is lazy and you're stupid and you don't know anything. Well, you have that going on four and fivefold now. And, and where the job, I think, used to be enough to bring people together, I think society was different then in the, the things we valued, the way we viewed elders, our manners, uh, the way we worked with each other. And now everybody is just in this electronic bubble of, you know, the Internet where they keep clicking and scrolling until they find something that makes them feel good about themselves. Uh, they don't communicate in person. They don't know how to you know, use their words. They, they can text you how they feel all day long. But if you pull somebody in the office, a lot of times say, Hey, like what's up with you today? It's, they just, they get fearful. And so how do you bridge all that gap into the culture? Well, kind of to your point, it's the personality. So, you know, step one is, is everybody on the same page? And if they're not, your battle stops there. That's, that's already the, the, the warfare department. If you don't have like-minded people, that's, it's like trying to herd cats, basically. So that's where you start, I think, with the bad culture. Too many people on too many different sheets of music making a very ugly sounding symphony under the, the guise of the fire service. But even if they are like minded, you know, do you have a healthy competition where people push each other and tease each other and, you know, try to make everybody better? Or do you have unhealthy competition where, hey, we're all here for the fire service, but I'm also here for myself? And like to your point with the chief in Canada, you know, he talks about his people. It's not about him. It's about us. It's about we. And people kind of balk at that stuff. But I think it goes a long way. It's it's amazing how little we think about the words we use sometimes, but how big of an impact they can actually have. It just that I, I learned a long time ago, not even in the fire service, but in the military and in playing sports, we did this versus I did this, or I let them do this. It, it's just a completely different conversation, but it's, we see people miss on it all the time. And so from there, if you can navigate that, you can get people on the same page. Then you have all these, other things which are less and less in our control these days, like budgets and equipment and maintenance and gear and call volume. And it's just so easy to see how many little things go into making us tick and making people what, what they feel makes them enjoy the job. So your list might be completely different than mine. You might be all about having a leather helmet and riding in this gorgeous custom cab engine with a bell on the front of it. And I'm not like that. I want somebody that's going to give me a nice winter coat <laughs> and, and I want a, a bunk room to myself so I don't have to listen to you snore. And I want to make sure that the computer we have in the truck is nice to get us there, but I don't really give a shit what it looks like. And so to your point, you've seen, you know, everybody, Oh, I've seen chiefs that do this. I've seen chiefs that do that. I, I think the chiefs play a role in it, but I think they're the easy scapegoat too, because think about that job. If you have, we'll throw a conservative number for a fire department. You have 50 people on your roster and they all have 50 different ideas of what a good culture is, what motivates them, what a good fire department is, what a good operational strategy is. And, and your job is to round them up into one product and put it on the street. And it's supposed to be right a hundred times out of a hundred. I mean, that's, that's no short order. So I, it's funny. And, and I'll just say it because I just don't really care at this point in my career. Honestly, I, I've been accused of being anti-administration for my thoughts for so long. And it's so ironic to me because I aspire to be part of administration possibly one day. I went to school for that. I 
I do research for that. I try to learn for that. But at the same time, that's not going to prevent me from, from calling out the problems. But I don't believe they're all administrative problems. I, I think administratively, you, you have a, I won't say an easier time, but you have more opportunity to kind of adjust some of those things and address some of those things than maybe a person does on the floor because of your authority. But at the same time, I know some amazing fire chiefs that can't motivate their people to do shit because their people don't want to be motivated. And it's not the chief's fault. They're doing all the things you say. They're having the we conversations. They're getting them leather helmets. They're, they're hey, guys, come spec this trial. We don't give a shit. We don't care what's on it. What do you, what do, you do with that? But somebody's got to be on the roster, right? And, you know, this probably sounds very <laughs> random and going down 500 rabbit holes is what we're talking about. But that's the point of culture. You, you can't just address culture without going down these the root system of it. And it you can just get down in these dark, dark rabbit holes for so long that you don't even know how you got there. And like, what are we even talking about right now? So it's kind of like... Uh... <clears throat> culture is the tree is not the tree you see, but it's the roots that's holding it up. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. And, and the tree is the service, right? The the tree is the service delivery because if the roots suck, the tree's going to fall over eventually, right? It'll look nice and it'll might have leaves most of the time, and most of the time it'll look good. But then when that really really bad storm comes through, you're going to find out what it's made of, and and departments are finding that out. I think. And especially now in a, in a time where it's really hard to find people like to even work. That's this is what I've had so many conversations this week with people about, you know, recruiting and retention, you know, from a post I did. And it's like, how do you, you can't even get people in the door to test right now. It's not a matter of finding, you know, the best of our 10 candidates. It's a matter of finding candidates, period. People have to staff the trucks and this becomes that vicious circle of how do you maintain a standard while maintaining staffing. And that's, I don't know. I, that, <laughs> I hate saying that to people. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answer. I have ideas to try, but I know people that are trying those ideas and they're still striking out. And it's just, it's a really shitty situation. Well, since you brought it up and, and I know you get to talk to people all over the country, right? So what do you think the reason is people aren't applying for the fire department anymore? It used to be hundreds of people, if not thousands, for one position. And now, you're, like you said, it's hard to scrape up 10 people. Why do you think that is? So <laughs> I think there's some major ones in there. But, it, again, it, it's no different than culture, right? Like everybody's motivated by something different. Uh, but I would say, number one, society as a whole, like I said, people – I don't think people really care about – people and community like they used to. That's just not our society right now. Everybody just wants to be pissed off at each other. They enjoy drama. They like to, you know, type from afar and say things they would never say in your face. And so you take our profession where the calling is primarily, you know, whether you like the adrenaline rush or the status in the community, whatever, the, the primary thing we do is we care for people. And I don't believe you can do this job if you don't on some level care for people. And and what I mean by that is I know a lot of people would say, oh, you know, I'm not prejudiced or biased. I hate everybody equally. Right. I've said it before. We've all said it because we're in that dark humor lane. But at the same time, if I really didn't care for other people, would I be rummaging through during overhaul trying to recover pictures of somebody's family? Right. Would I you know, some things we've done in the past, if we've run a call with a guy and I, his wife is sick and his, his American flag out front was tattered. So we went to Walmart and bought him one, 
You know, I'm not saying that to flaunt something we did. I'm just saying those ideas don't come in your head if you don't on some level care for people and community and things like that. But unfortunately, that's not what we're teaching in school. We're teaching, you know, uprisings and rebellions and being rogue. And, and the fire service does it to a point too, usually good natured, but it's just we're a divisive population. So I think it starts there. I think that rolls into the fact that if you go back, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years ago on the volunteer side, there was a lot of benefits within the community. There was things to do. You know, it was a, it was a hangout in a lot of ways, but it was also people were there to get the job done. And then on the career side, it paid halfway decent. It's never been the highest paying job, but the pension was out of this world. It was 90 to 100 percent in most places. It was medical after you retire. It was 20 years and you retired. But now we're pushing 30 years, a lot of places for retirement. That's to get, you know, maybe 65, 85 if you're lucky. And if you're still tying medical benefits to that on your way out the door, you're probably doing better than most places. So you got that going on. The call volume is up. The quality of call compared to the poster that we sold people is probably not there nine times out of 10. Uh, we still go to fires. I went to a fire last night, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, they still happen, uh, but it's not like you're going to run a fire every shift. The irony being is that people want fires all the time. And then they bitch when a fire happens because they don't want to clean up and they're tired. Right. So that's a that whole other, you know, just cover <laughs> culture thing we have. Uh, but um, and I, and I hate to say it because again, it sounds so, I don't know, against the status quo. I don't mean to be this way, but we have expanded our mission so far and wide now that you're, you're asking people to say, you know, I'll just, again, I'll use a round number because it's easy. You can work at, you know, Jake Barnes donut factory for $50,000 a year as a manager. And all you got to do is worry about producing and eating donuts, right? That that's where you live. Or you can go work for Barnes Fire Department, and we're going to pay you $50,000 a year to be a lieutenant. So not only do you have to manage people still, but you have to manage and learn 17 different disciplines for all this stuff we do now. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying at what point do we sit down and look at the fact that maybe we're just stretching people beyond where their flexibility is now. It's, you know... Just take the two big hitters, fire and EMS. Those are two separate professions that, that we're doing for basically one salary in most places. And that's before you had hazmat and rescue and incident command and admin duties and grant writing and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You can add it on, fit your department here. So if you combine all those things, you know, society is not what it was 20, 30 years ago, especially with community and, and society and how we treat each other. The job is busier. The benefits aren't quite as good as we say they are or as they were years ago. And then on top of that, you're not going to the fire department to be a firefighter anymore. You're going to be a fire department. It pains me to say it, but employee that is going to administer the all hazards approach to public safety. And you're going to wear 37 hats and we're going to pay you for one. Now, I'm still into it. I still think it's the best job on the world, but I could see where that detracts from somebody coming in or where somebody was, you know, fed the backdraft, you know, I'll, I'll quote Peter Matthews. I just talked to him from firehouse today and that was his thing. He wrote it in an editorial, you know, we're selling this backdraft poster and then we're sending you on lift assist. And then we're like, I don't understand why they left. <laughs> well, 
you know, uh, it's gee, let's do the math here. You know, let me go. Bowl <laughs> is is taking place with a walker and a toilet now. Not in I a took building. a sip when you said that. I- <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I mean, Jay, I, I'm just brushing the surface here. I, I'm sure there's many oh, other factors, that. but that's just again, that's where I just start rolling that proverbial snowball down the hill of, you know, I don't really know that the job is what we're telling people it is. And maybe that's why we can't keep them. I can't help but wonder too, that in bringing our health and wellness to the forefront for the, uh, all over the internet, uh, that had something to do with it too. It could be a small piece or a big piece, but anymore, if I want to be a firefighter in today's world, I'm going to pull up YouTube. I'm going to Google some stuff. And the first thing I'm going to see is the cancer rate and heart attacks. So I could see where that would scare you off a little bit as well. And I'm not saying that's a huge part of it, but I think you put all this stuff together and you're getting a real shitty soup. Yeah. And and some of those things are easy to deal with in a lot of ways. They cost money, though, which is difficult. So, for example, if you're actually you know, doing your homework on the job and and I interview and you're like, you know, well, Captain, you know, I see that firefighters have a 4,000% higher occurrence of prostate cancer than, you know, the average person my age, you know, what what are you doing to help me with that? Or, you know, I thought I wanted this job, but that kind of scares me. Well, if I can tell you that, well, hey, first of all, we're going to give you multiple sets of turnout gear and follow through on it so that your, your risk will be diminished right there. And this is why I'd explain it to them. And we do field decom, which has shown 90 to 98% of contaminants are removed. But we're going to go further than that. You're going to get a physical with us every year. We're going to do a blood panel before you get hired so we can track abnormalities and get you early treatment. Oh, we also have cancer preemption within the state legislature because we've worked on it. Uh, We have some affordable cancer policies that we're getting through a group rate. Like I said, you can go down all these things, but it takes some effort. It takes some money and it takes some politicking. And, you know, some places are more successful than others. But whether you talk about sleep deprivation, you're talking about cancer, you're talking about divorce rates, you're talking about pay. I think if we really sat down and put the effort in, you could speak to all those things, whether it's through mental health counseling, through financial advising, because contrary to whatever they teach you in recruit school, the first year on the line, you don't have to have a boat, a four wheeler, a camper a truck that sits on giant wheels and a mansion while you're single. <laughs> uh, that's probably poor fiscal responsibility, but we don't, we, we don't teach you that. And Oh, by the way, all the other guys in the parking lot have it. So who, who are we to tell you? No. Uh, so we're kind of our own worst enemy in a lot of ways with this stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'll do you one better. When, if you're going to recruit people for this job and tell them it's a brotherhood and it's the best thing you've ever seen and come down and find out. And then you, you actually believe us and you walk in the door and the first five people you encounter before you make it actually into the fire, the station part of the firehouse are, you know, some guy bitching about how much he hates work. Some guy who's trying to get out the door because you're there to relieve him and he doesn't even talk to you. Uh, Oh, the other guys just didn't talk to you because you're new. So all you've heard about is how bad the fire department sucks. I want to get out of here and we're not going to talk to you because you haven't proven yourself yet. But come on to our family, right? Come into our culture. We just can't figure out why people don't want to be a part of it. Uh, it's not rocket science to me. I, it's We are our own worst enemies in more ways <laughs> than we will ever admit. 
<laughs> well, with that being the case, um, is it too far off to think that we're not getting the cream of the crop now, which means we'll probably get less in the future. So the fire service is somewhat doomed and probably headed towards um, having to back off the, ha- the all hazards approach. I don't think so. Or is that is that too simplistic of you? It is and it's not. I I think all hazards is here to stay because, quite frankly, who else is going to do it? We're we're like the last profession that actually is willing to not kick the rock down the road a little further. So what I see happening is what's happened in the fire service for decades, innovation. Maybe instead of trying to rebuild the wheel with hose and nozzles and forcible entry tools and ground ladders, we're going to see some people that do some innovation in, in our service delivery and how we can keep people you know, not necessarily on the ambulance all the time, but we can do these things without taking the tri- fire truck out of service, without having burnout and, and all those things. Uh, I also think that we have seen as Americans and as humans in society, when it seems doomed, somebody always steps up to the plate. There, it will, it will get to a point where nobody wants to do it, and there will be that need, and there will be courageous, selfless people that maybe weren't going to stand up before that say, hey, you know, fuck this. This is our community. These are our people. Those are my grandparents, your grandparents. We're going down to the firehouse and we're going to fix this. And maybe I don't want to be a firefighter. It scares a mess out of me, but I can't sit here and watch my neighbor's house burn again or another person die because nobody showed up. And that's very doomsday, which we've lived on as a fire service for years, trying to get money like, oh, people will die. Right. (laughs) But some places it's getting that case. And, you know, EMS is the same way. I think they're going to have to relook at what they actually do and the calls they run. And I think we went, you know, not to get off on a too crazy of a tangent here, but as somebody that's worked in EMS for a long time as well, we we went from a hearse to trying to make everybody a doctor without the pay and the education. There's a balance somewhere in that middle that we just completely tripped over and kept going. Mm -hmm. So I think when you, when you take the, the issues with that and then what we're having the fire service, I, I see them merging more than they are now into more of a, a common thing and, and they address things that will make people do the job. So probably not too far off of, you know, something's going to have to give at some point. And luckily as a profession, we don't let things come to that. We, we find a way somebody steps up and I'm just scared that that will break at some point because there's nobody there. You know, you can only work so many hours in a row. You can only run short staff for so long. And, you know, when it breaks, that's going to, we're going to get exposed. And and I say, I say this knowing what it, the, the weight of what it's going to be, but it almost needs to break so that the, the community can see how dire the problem is. The flip side mm-hmm. of that though, is that if it does come to that, everything that our the guys that came and the girls that came before us work for <clears throat> is gone. Our credibility is out. Our status with the community is out. And we are going to have to rebuild from square one because the, the minute that we don't get it done the way we have since the fire department started, I'm telling you, it's not going to be good. So I, I hope it doesn't come to that. And, and I think what we're seeing right now, I think we're seeing 
fire service leaders start asking questions they wouldn't have asked before. I think we're looking places we wouldn't look before. We're we're getting a little more introspective than has been comfortable in the past and saying, hey, maybe it's not everybody else coming in and leaving. Maybe it's, you know, those of us on the job. And, and that's a hard conversation to have because, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I, I love the old school fire service. I love what it meant. I love what it represented. But is that practical going forward? And you know, I put a lot of time, blood, sweat, tears into this profession. So to to have to change it for the guys coming and girls coming in the door, it sounds like it sucks. But if I don't, there, there's nobody to leave it to. So that's, that's kind of the, the, what are the, the big, the scales of justice, right. For the, for the fire service is going to be that. How do you, how do you keep the standard? How do you keep the culture and, and the tradition, but also make it open for people to come in and continue all those things. I totally agree. The, uh, one of the things I think about is <clears throat> how fire service is going to have to change in, in regards to uh, recruitment. Um, I, retention, I've never seen too much of a retention problem, but as I travel around, I do see that people have trouble retaining some of the people because there's always laterals, and better, better pay, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things I was thinking about, so my department, we've never had to do much advertising for, for spots because people always come by the firehouse like, Every couple of months, hey, man, when are you guys hiring? When are you guys hiring? So it's a one-way conversation for us. We put out the date we're hiring, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So I think if we want to get better people in my department, I'm not saying the people we've got are bad. That's not at all what I mean. I mean get a better selection of people to hire. We need to have a two-way conversation, meaning we have stuff where, you know, you can have uh, people come by, the, you know, host an event for people that think they might want to be firefighters. Show them what we do. Um, let them see the firehouse, the equipment, the trucks, and ask the questions and, and have that two-way conversation. So hopefully we can weed out people that don't want to do it and then actually bring some people in that really might want to do it. Um, that, that's one of the bigger problems right now, though, is, is at least in my area, is, is the recruitment. We're, we're still getting good people, but we're not nowhere getting the, the volume of good people to choose from. Yeah, and... You know, part of that too, it, it's very regional. It really does depend where you are, whether a lot of places right now it's recruitment and retention. Nobody, nobody can do either. And, and some places aren't hit as hard as others. But what concerns me is the number of people just, and I'll only speak to the people I've known in my, you know, I think I'm close to 20 years now doing this. How many people not, it's not the laterals like you talked about. It's not the people that are going to Barnes Fire Department because you got a battalion opening or a training chief opening, right? And, it, and they're, they're not going to do that in their own department. It's the people that have been on for five, six, 10, 15 years. And one day sitting in the apparatus bay are like, I'd rather cut grass than be here. I'd rather go, you know, dig holes than be here. I'd rather go, you know, be a financial advisor, insert part-time job that's now full-time job here. And that's scary to me because the middle is what we don't look at enough. We we look at why are guys retiring early or why are they not retiring? Why are the, the new guys leaving so fast or why can't we hire anybody? But we, we don't really watch the middle well. And that's the biggest health indicator of your department. In a lot of places now, I, I know, especially in the volunteer service, it's the two extremes. It's really, really young with no experience and, and really old with a ton of experience, but maybe not the youth of a body to, to apply it anymore. And the, in the middle that used to connect those is just falling out. Um, but to, to your point of how do we get people at some point, we're going to have to start acknowledging that training is not a line item that we can just cut out to save money. 
and and I know that operations has to come first because without operations, there's the fire department doesn't need to exist. Hey, you can train all you want, but if you don't have the resources and the people to respond, it, it's all for nothing. But the training, I say, because that's how you get the vocational programs back into the, the technical colleges and the community colleges and the high schools. And it, you can't ask people to come to you. You've got to go to them. And if you don't, if you're trying to do that with on-duty staff, it's doomed from the start because that's great till you get a call or you're understaffed that day or you don't have aid that day or whatever it may be. You, you can't ask people to constantly come to you, especially I'll give you an example, high school programs. How can you go to a high school in your community, which is probably one of the best places you have to recruit before they go out in the workforce and say, hey, we're going to start this program. We want to do it with your juniors. We're going to teach them how to be firefighters. We're even going to give them probably the basic EMT class if we can figure out how to do it. They won't be able to get certified till they turn 18, but they'll have everything they need. They'll be vetted. We'll run the test for them. They'll be certified. They can come down here. They'll, they'll be ready to be employed. The catch is you got to get them to us after school three days a week. That's not an easy venture to get them off campus. So right. that's where I say the training, if you can have a training department, not a training chief, a training department with people or a budget for training where, hey, you're the training chief and I'm off duty, but you can hire me back out of a separate budget to go teach class that day. And maybe it's straight time. Maybe it's not overtime. I don't know. Whatever you work out. But we're going to have to get creative and bring the job to people. I also don't think we do a good job of bringing it to like job fairs and stuff because we don't, we got to be careful who we send, right? You can't send Mark all the time because if Mark is talking out of his mind today, what might happen, you know? <laughs> and uh, so you, you got to send personal people, but at the same time, you need to send people with the time and experience that can actually speak to the job. You can't just take whatever makes the picture look best on Facebook. You got to be people that can speak to the job on a, on a industrial vocational level that can answer questions beyond the benefits that, that have been authorized to give honest answers. Like, Hey, do you guys sleep at night? Like, no, not all the time. There's plenty of shifts or we don't, or even worse, we, we get frequently awakened at two 30 in the morning, right in the middle of that deep sleep. And so you never really fall asleep and you never really get back to sleep when you get back and, Oh, do you see bad stuff? Well, yeah, I'm not really going to talk about it with you, but we see people at their worst and that's not always bleeding and broken. Sometimes it's crying. Sometimes it's mentally broke down. Sometimes it's people covered in their own shit because there's nobody there to take care of them. But we're not ready to have those conversations with the public, but you have to be if you want them to come in the door. So that's the future to me. That's how you recruit. We, we You have to me what the old school fire department recruiting model was, right? It was association. It was you knew somebody in the fire department or you thought it was cool, so you went by the fire department. We're going to have to start going after them. And and again, that's why I say it has to grow beyond your operations suppression personnel because they just – I can do PR. I can go install smoke detectors. I can go do a class at the local school, but I'm in service. And so I can only do so much. And that's where I say we have to stop neglecting that, that training side of the house just – Kind of, you know, like we do the the CRR side, which is important to a degree, but we want to throw it all in operations. So, again, go back to the original conversation, right? You're a firefighter, you're an EMT, you're a hazmat tech, you're a, a, a rope tech, you're a, a rescue specialist, whatever you want to call it. Oh, and by the way, you're a recruiter now, and you're going to do community risk reduction, and you're going to be a life safety educator. How much can one person do? Because what we forget, whether it's volunteer 
and people have families to go home to and full-time jobs to go to when they're not at the firehouse or a career where, hey, we did all these things eight to five or eight to nine, but while everybody else goes home, I still got to run all night maybe. And and so <laughs> you can't just expect people to be working 24 consecutive hours. We're the insurance policy, right? We're not we're not there to be constantly functioning. We're, we're there to be the insurance policy. That's part of what your taxes pay for. And we don't really communicate that well. I think a lot of times we let people say, oh, well, what are they doing down there playing PlayStation and, and cooking and washing cars? Because that's what we post on Facebook. That's, that's what they know about. No, we're, mm-hmm. yeah, they're hanging out, but they're also, they're resting. You know, they're, they're mentally preparing. They've trained today. They're, they're making sure they're fresh to go to your call. It's not, they haven't done anything all day. It's, this is how they're kind of winding down because the likelihood that somebody's going to call them while you're asleep at your home it, is great. And Hey, by the way, this is a percentage of calls we run after midnight. If that helps your situation, if you're sleeping, I'd keep that statistic locked away. But, uh, you know, like I said, on honest conversations, sometimes there things are so easy sometimes, and we just make them overly complicated because of our egos, or because we're scared of what the answers might say, or because we're we're trying to prepare for a reaction that may never come. I'm not saying don't plan for it, but you have to act on it. You know, have something in the in the gun to go. But if you're being honest about it, if it pisses people off, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. So you leave them nowhere to go. You, you're passionate about this. There's no doubt. <laughs> Probably a little too passionate for my own good, but that's, that's a different conversation for the non-recorded line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll have that conversation soon. So you, you're obviously passionate about um, the culture of the fire department, and you're passionate about leadership. How do you tie the two together, or do you tie the two together? Yes and no. I, leadership at its core is a hundred percent necessary without leaders. Nobody's going anywhere, right? Somebody has to be out front. Somebody has to be willing to, to say charge and move forward, whether anybody's with them or not. That's, that's leadership. It's ironic to me that in a profession full of alpha type personalities, we have a thirst for leadership all of a sudden. It's, it's so baffling to me how we as a fire service have taught for decades now leadership positions, right? They're tied to rank, they're tied to authority, they're, they're tied to job function. And then when maybe some men and women that didn't really excel at those roles or deserve those roles somehow made their way into them, we kind of flipped the script because we didn't want to have that talk. And it turned into leadership at all levels, which it this has been happening on its own organically since the the turn of time, it's the old military next man up attitude. So it's nothing new and it's very much tied to the culture because if nobody's willing to put themselves out there, if nobody's willing to be the pinata for everybody to beat on for the sake of progress, then yeah, you're not going to go anywhere. But then you bring in the followership aspect, which is what we don't talk enough about. And to me, the the Mm -hmm. best way I can describe it is, you know, leadership without followers is just walking around. It's some person, you know, going into battle, you know, guns blazing, and then they turn around and there's nobody behind them when, when the whole enemy, you know, line is in front of them. And and sadly, whether it's true or not, I, I think that there's probably a, a lot of people that feel that's what their situation is in their departments. And maybe not every day or everything, but people that are trying to improve 
hose and nozzle packages or people that are trying to define a role for their, their truck company, their support company, people that really mm-hmm. like EMS and want to say, hey, if we're going to do it, let's do it well. Those are the people that are turning into punching bags. And, and that's that's leadership. But we don't we don't look at leadership like that. We think leadership is somebody blowing smoke up our ass and hugging us and saying, hey, you're right all the time. And so we have this weird like dichotomy of leadership <laughs> where we, we think we want it, but we don't really know what it looks looks like and i'm guilty just like the rest i so don't take that wrong i mean there's there's plenty of times where i've been brought into a room with somebody that you know was certainly leading me and i didn't see it at the time and i wanted to kill them when i walked out of the room and it it took me calling somebody or or coming home and and you know marinating a little bit to be like man i really don't agree with this but this person has my best interest in mind and they came at me with factual statements and I didn't really have a rebuttal, which is why I'm pissed off. I'm not pissed off at them, I'm pissed off at myself. One, because I, I hadn't thought, you know, as many steps ahead as them, but two, you know, like I, I had somebody lead me and I put up the fight that I preach against because I didn't see it. And, that, and that's where we lose people. But I mean, followership at its core, it, it's really easy. It's, it's just people that are willing to, to model the behaviors of the leader, to get on board with a program, to, to advocate for something. And the hard part about followership that, that I struggle with, that anybody struggles with, is it kind of coexists with leadership. So take a company officer, for instance. I, I'm a, I have to exhibit leadership and followership at the same time. I need to lead my firefighters that are assigned to me, but I also need to follow those above me. But I also need to follow my firefighters at some point because we're going to advocate for leadership at all levels. If you've got somebody on your crew that's a rope person and you're not, I don't care how many bugles are on you. Sit out and shut the fuck up and let them do the rope stuff. I mean, that's that's a simple way to lead by following. And so we, we miss all these opportunities and to kind of tie this back to what you said when you went, you talked about earlier with, with chiefs and culture, right? This is where some chiefs hit it out of the park and some chiefs, you know, hit foul balls. They're so close and some just strike out all the time is that you don't always have to be the smartest person in the room. And quite frankly, you could still be the smartest person in the room and listen to somebody else sometimes or, or go a different direction. And, and what I found in my career is that those chiefs that were willing to let me just run with something, knowing damn well I was going to run into a wall <laughs> if I ran with it, were the best ones because what they taught me was, hey, all right, you want to be a leader? Go ahead, but I'm going to teach you the lesson the hard way. So – Sometimes it's a matter of we protect people too much and then they won't follow us because we don't let them make those mistakes. I, I get in those situations all the time. I, it's crept up on me that I've been in the fire service for as long as I have now. And what I, I now, while I don't agree with it, I understand what some of the senior people when I was young were telling me because I want to be that person now. And I almost have to bite my lip and be like, you need to let them make those mistakes because if you hadn't made those mistakes you would have never found your way. And it's just like kids, you can't put them in a padded room. So, I mean, that's my roundabout way of saying, yeah, they're all connected, right? But they're also, I think we try to divide it into Jake's a leader, Mark's a follower, and that makes a culture when in reality, everybody on the roster at some way, shape or form is, is a leader and a follower. And I think we miss it so often because we have this preconceived notion of what leadership looks like. And, you know, follower is a dirty word, isn't it? You know, don't be a follower. Again, how can a leader lead if nobody's willing to follow them? That's, you know, yes. so I digress. <laughs> 
No, that that's a perfect example because I mean, a follower used. I'm not using it in the pejorative. The, the, a follower, somebody that that is trying to improve and, and and do good for the fire service or company and themselves, they're not necessarily a leader yet, right? They're a good follower, but when they become a leader, it does. It's not like you said. It's not like you're not a follower anymore. Now you're a follower and a leader, just like when you're a firefighter and then mm-hmm. you're a sergeant. You, you no longer, it's not like you're not a firefighter anymore. You're a firefighter and a sergeant. Same with the captain. You're a firefighter, sergeant, captain. And I think it's all the foundation, uh, like a pyramid. You got to build for the bottom up. And I really believe, I've seen so many leaders that were terrible followers. And you could, you don't even have to know them. You could watch how they do stuff and go, I guarantee you they were the pain in the ass to a captain at some point. And it's, it's terrible to see that stuff, but, uh, they, they get, they get promoted. They get, they move on up the ladder. And and to be fair, I mean, I'll throw myself under the bus. You know, I'm not always a good follower. I fight way too much stuff that, that I shouldn't. I, you know, I, I allow myself to, to have a position on something sometimes and not be as forward thinking as I like to think I am all the time because that's an experience thing too. There are certain topics where, and, and I'll just give you an example, and it'll, I don't even care what anybody thinks. There it is. Ready? The gospel by Mark. Here it comes. Don't talk to me about other hose loads if your reasoning is that you can <laughs> turn them into the Minuteman, which is what I want you to have anyway. If your hose load has to be turned into mine, mine is supreme, it is superior, it is it is God's hose load, okay? So I'm sure that'll that'll give you a lot of flack right in the, in the reviews, but... That's one thing where I'm I'm not going to budge on it because I've tried them all, and and every time somebody's tried to sway me to theirs, their their whole delivery was you could turn it into the Minuteman, but I have never taught somebody a Minuteman. Said, well, it's cool, bro. You could turn it into a triple. No, that's that's not the selling point. So, it, so sometimes I'm inflexible, but for good reason, I guess. But you know, the the other thing with followership, I think too, is that what we miss is the ability to take direction in, in a positive way and why that's important to leadership is because whether you have somebody that's leading you. And again, leadership doesn't say whether it's good or bad leadership. It just says leadership. Somebody is leading you in a direction. It doesn't mean it's good. I have learned a lot of things from following people who have led me in a shitty direction over the years. A lot of what I do as a company officer is 180 degrees from what somebody may have done to me in some cases. Sometimes I've replicated it to a T and other times it's like, man, I remember how, you know, when I worked for that Barnes guy, this is how he made me feel by doing this. And I would never make anybody feel like that, that worked for me. So I, I don't know if this is right, but I know what he did was not right. So to go 180 degrees in the other direction is my starting point. And, and that's sometimes it's kind of the best way to do it. And, you can learn a lot by following. I, I would argue that if you're not ready to be a follower, you will never be a leader because you have never followed enough direction to know what works and what doesn't work. Yes. Couldn't be more right. Now, do you, uh, you, you also have a webcast, Unlock Your Culture. Do you get to get riled up when you talk on Unlock Your Culture Man. about yeah, culture? Yeah, so we're and brave. Or you, do you no, say that no, for me? We're, we're brave. So, Unlock Your Culture is four of us. It's it's me, it's Sean Duffy, uh, and Pablo Jenner from Build Your Culture, and it's it's John Haywick from Back to Basics Fire Training. Uh, I always slaughter his name so he can he can get mad at me. I never remember his company. Beyond the basics, I'm sorry. Uh, so we're all like minded, passionate people with an affinity for F words, 
and we like to drink. And we thought it would be a magnificent idea to not only put all four of us together to talk shop, but we would do it with a live studio audience. And then we would record it and send it out unedited to the masses. So uh, it's a little cutthroat sometimes, but it's some really good talks. And and the cool thing about that to, to go with the topic is that We've gotten kind of – we don't have a whole bunch of people that get on. We have more people, I think, that listen to it after the fact. But we usually get a crowd of six, seven, eight people. Sometimes I think we have many 14 or 20 live with it. But the cool thing about it is – and I'm sure you've experienced this being in the podcast world. I'll be driving to work listening to you talk to somebody. And I'm like, man, I want to interject right now. Like I have the answer or I have like the perfect scenario to ask about this. But it's already recorded and, and now I can't do it. So – our concept was to get on the webcast is that it's a podcast, but it's on the camera live. And so if you want to sit in the audience and, and we're talking about followership and that's your forte, man, but nobody's ever heard of you or you, you just don't want to be out there talking like that, but you want to speak your piece. It's zoom. You get unmuted and you get to talk to the the host. And if we have a guest, you're, you're interacting live. So it's more of a round table with whoever wants to show up versus a round table of subject matter experts. Now, sometimes it takes horrible dives into the ditch and we don't recover. And, uh, you know, some people that may or may not be a part of the podcast, they're, they're good for a set number of F bombs in any given block or segment. But you know what? To me, it's the fire station on a camera. It's, it's the, the, the table in the bay. That's it. That's it. That when I see it, I'm like that you get, you get engrossed in it. Right. So, I, I watch it after the fact. I'm one of those guys, right? So I, I watch it. And I'm like, this is, ju- they're just in a firehouse, man. That's all it is. And uh, it gets passionate. It gets passionate. There's no doubt there. It's, it's, it's an excellent webcast. It's an excellent webcast. And I hope more people not only see it, but I, I hope more people watch it live so they can come, you know, talk to you and everything about it. So tell me how often you put that on and how yeah, do we so find we're it? We're doing it monthly. Uh, we, we pick Sundays. Uh, because nobody really does anything on a Sunday, but we do it at seven o'clock Eastern time at night. Uh, hopefully that's early enough before your kids go to bed or, you, you know, late enough to where you don't have anything else going on. And like I said, we try to do it monthly. We were trying to do a guest every month, but that trying to schedule four hosts is a scheduling nightmare. And then you're going to add the wild card of the guest in. So if we've got a guest that can, that can accommodate our schedule, absolutely. We'll have them on. Uh, but we're, we've kind of for the past month or two, we're trying more to go with a topic instead of, of a host. And if a host or sorry, if a guest. And so if a guest presents themselves based on that topic, cool. If not, we all realize that, hey, we're, we're pretty four pretty good dudes with some time on the job. Like we'll probably be good guests. So uh, that's kind of the direction it goes. And, and kind of like you said, it, it's like the firehouse. So unlock your culture, meaning. Let's talk about ways to make a culture better, but also unlock yourself, right? Come here, break, you know, pop a, pop a top with us, have a, have a drink and, and, and say the things that for some reason we're so scared to say in the fire service. And I know it might piss some people off. It probably rubs some people wrong. It'll probably cost me a job or a promotion someday. And that's life. But talk about leadership, right? Why are we so scared to talk about these things? Why are we so scared to be honest? Right. Yeah, actually, yeah, I just said, like, I, I don't know why we're so scared to be honest about things. He say why we've we put the fear of people saying what they mean into words and then we're going to punish them. And that's what we're trying to combat. Well, I, you know, 
Aristotle, in relation to that, Aristotle once said, um, fuck them and feed them fish heads. And I think that really, I think it was Aristotle that said that. That, that EKU anyway, education, uh, I think they, <laughs> paying dividends. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> go Colonels. <laughs> Is he Aristotle or, or my wife. I can't remember. Or me. Fucking feed them fish heads. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, let's ask, let's wrap up on this one, good buddy. What about Firehouse Expo? You're probably not going to. It, uh, right? That's that's one I try to make without a doubt. Probably one of the, you know, I, I think it's the best conference just because I've done it a lot of times. And, you know, it's that old ad. Whatever I'm doing is the best thing out there right now. But it, <laughs> In in all seriousness, <laughs> Firehouse Expo is is a great event. Uh, you know, lots of great people there. Not only that speak, but behind the scenes that take care of us. And so I'm I'm honored to be going back. I want to say it's the fourth or the fifth year in a row. COVID kind of messed up me tracking things. Uh, but, but yeah, I got two classes. Yeah, COVID, fucking COVID. COVID. Everybody's over COVID. Unleash the monkey pox. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, I'm oh, gonna god, stop before yeah, that becomes reality. Like that. But no. Um so yeah, they're <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say. Uh but but they're having me back this year for two <laughs> classes and uh I'm not doing my culture class this year for the for the first time with Firehouse. I'm actually doing a couple different things, uh trying to get more into the the actual conference stuff than pre-conference. So I'll be doing my class called the Hat Dance Realities of the Short Staff Company Officer. And that class I think is an hour and a half, hour forty-five. And, and whether you have four or five people on your, your apparatus or not, it's, it's for you. Uh, we talk about, uh, the NFPA staff requirements. We talk about OSHA. We talk about what really is sitting in our bays with cross staffing and reduced staffing and, and how there's, you know, sometimes you can be short staffed without being short staffed. If that makes sense because of the way we arrive on scene sometimes or being out of pocket, stuff like that. And, and then the rest of the class, we just talk about ways to combat it. If you, if, you know, we can't manufacture bodies. So how can we train? How can we prep our apparatus? How can we adjust our tactics, our strategies? You know, what are, what are some things we can do to, to deliver on that message that we get the community without the people to do so? Because what sparked the class was me going through formal education in, in these fire academy style classes that teach you that, hey, you're going to flow this two and a half with five people on it. Until you get to your job and there's two of you or one of you and you still got to flow a two and a half because the fire doesn't adjust its intensity based on your staffing. Uh, and then this, the, my second class is called uh, Probing right. to Promoting the Missing Link of Professional Development. Uh, that class was kind of kind of a pipe dream. It's been it's seen many forms over the years. I've found my way with it. I've, I've pissed some people off with it at the beginning because uh, I was. I was not going about it right. I, I 100% own that one. But uh, the, the gist of it is we do a, a whole lot of front loading with our, our new members with training and checklists and probie books and getting cleared to do this and do that. And then we just kind of sit them there to gain experience, you know, running calls. And then all of a sudden, three, four, five years has passed. They're out for promotion. They don't mm -hmm. have the classes. They don't have the knowledge. We haven't done anything with them. So, uh Part of it is to kind of combat that, to give some ideas for how to make sure we're not losing track of our people once they come off probation. But also it's a bit of a twist on the things I wish I knew, uh, both as a company officer and a probationary firefighter. So, for example, little things of, hey, you know, Jake here knew I set up my gear like this and here's why, 
you know, or I put my mask on like that. Just the little tricks of the trade we take for granted, uh, just trying to get those out there and making sure that we're doing everything we can do to prepare our young firefighters to replace us one day, especially these days when that replacement time, it seems to be shrinking by the generation. So you don't have 10, 12 years anymore. You might have 10 or 12 months and they're tested for engineers. So let's get out there and, and do everything we can to make them ready. Absolutely, Brother Mark. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you doing this a third time. Only two are getting aired because I fucked up the second one. But I want everybody to listen uh, that's listening to check out The Fire Inside. You're going to love it. I promise you. It's some of the best writing that you'll see. Not only go there, but share it with your brothers and sisters. It's pertinent. It's current. It's outstanding. Uh, check out Unlock Your Culture every Sunday. Uh, I promise you. I I promise you, you'll you enjoy the conversations else. and how they get where they're going. It's it's a treat. And uh, oh, hundred percent every time. And then, uh, but let's try to make that. If you're listening to this, let's try to make it uh, next time. Let's all of us get on there live. Let's let's inundate them and just drive them nuts. Okay, so that's going to be our next goal. And then, uh, if you're going to Firehouse Expo, please check out Mark's uh, classes. I promise you, there too, it's going to be awesome, brother. Yes, Mark, sir. I, I got one more to plug for you because I'm shameless today on my third time. Uh, I'm actually helping uh, Nick Pepper teach a class at the uh, North Central Florida Fire Conference in October. It's kind of a, a tactical engine type class for staffing of three or less. We do a lot of hose loads, of ways to advance things, getting in the building with, you know, again, kind of going with what I what I speak about, right? Fewer than ideal staffing. So if you're going to be at the North Central Florida Fire Conference, uh, come check out our engine class. I think it's going to be a great time. I guarantee it. You and Nick together, shut up. Times, That's going to be awesome. Times. Today's podcast was sponsored by Fire Facilities, designers and manufacturers of realistic, built-to-last training structures and mobile units for 30 years. Make training count. Visit firefacilities.com for more information.